everybody. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast, Finding You. I am so grateful and honored today to, to have a special guest, um, my friend, Molly Carmel. And, and I'm excited to introduce you to her work. You know, part of this is, is, is celebrated because she just came out with a new book. The book is called Breaking Up With Sugar. Um, and, and the subtitle I love, Divorcing Diets, Divorcing the Diets, Drop the Pounds and live your best life. So it's in celebration of that. But really my affection, respect and connection with Molly goes far beyond and before this book. So I, I, with great pride, I introduce my good friend and colleague, Molly Carmel. Welcome, Molly. It's great to be here. I feel exactly the same about you, Brad. It is just such an exciting time to be able to sit and chat with you. It's some of my favorite things to do in this world is to sit and chat with you. So to get to do it in this platform is an honor. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I, I know there's a backstory. I mean, so much of what you do in this book, it, the, the, a powerful aspect of it is um, how honestly and transparently you tell your story. So part of this first question is a little bit of the background personally that led to this book or the ideas in this book. And then part of it also is your professional uh, journey, you know, the, the, the journey that got you to the point uh, of writing this book. So tell us a little bit about the backstory that led to what, what we have in front of us today. So the job that I have uh, is one of those jobs that doesn't feel like a job. Uh, it feels really like this calling. And in writing the first chapter of this book, which was my story, which was one of the most difficult, beautiful, powerful, groundbreaking uh, things that I've ever done for myself. Um, putting it all together was just, um, it, was, it was pretty amazing. And I really saw these parallel paths that my personal life and my struggles and these challenges that I was presented and then how they influenced my professional career. Um, and in a lot of ways, really saw this, this beautiful thing that I think a lot of us get to see after we've really suffered, which is how much I've grown and, you know, how, how much I'm capable of. And so, you know, I, was, I had this, a pretty solid trauma when I was short of three. My dad passed away really traumatically and... Um, my relationship with sugar and food began. Um, and then by the age of seven, all the adults were concerned, rightfully so, by the way, and, um, and took me to my first nutritionist. Um, and I remember being that nutritionist thinking, this isn't going to work. This isn't even solving my problem because all they were doing was talking about food portions. And I, at that point already, was like seeking out food for for nourishing and for numbing. And, and, um, and so I knew this, this nutritionist thing wasn't going to work. And I was hiding food and hoarding food and, and a lot of the behaviors that I think are really typical in, in disordered eating. And then at 13, my mom put me in a weight loss camp, which mm -hmm. by the way, was like some of the most fun summers of my life, but yeah. certainly exacerbated <laughs> a problem because it was sort of like, they fed us and they ran us and we lost a lot of weight and we all got into our goal genes. It was incredible. And, uh, and then I knew in my, the bottom of my soul that that weight was going to go right back on. And I remember being like in ninth grade in home economics in my gap jeans that fit me and all of gap jeans stopped fitting me because, you know, 
I was in plus sizes and the button popped off of my black gap jeans mm-hmm. and you know, the way that the diet cycle goes, right? Earnest hope, demoralization, turn to food, gain weight, demoralization, maybe find some hope again. And, you know, and I knew it, I knew even like by the age of 13, when I was at those weight loss camps, I really had that calling that this is, I I knew there had to be a more comprehensive solution to this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, fast forward, like, I had to go through so many awful, awful, tragic encounters with dieting and doctors and, you know, my own powerlessness with food. Um, and that includes everything, right? This It's a thorough chapter, right? It includes, you know, not wanting to live. And it includes, you know, having uh, bariatric surgery, which, you know, is a medical procedure for a you know, biological, chemical, spiritual, emotional problem and eating my way through that and, you know, and and being hired to um, start these boarding schools, which were incredible, but the treatment model lacking in so many ways. And, and, um, and so in, in each, in each time that I would make this attempt to try to control and fix my weight problem, right? Because I never, I didn't, wouldn't go that comprehensive with it. I was always met with like demoralization and failure until I, I finally just had to say, like, I, I have to find a way to fix this. Right. I have to help people heal. And that started with healing myself. I mean, this is something again, that, that attracts me to you as a friend is this, this ability to kind of pull out from these very private, dark moments, uh, this story, this truth that really speaks to the shame that we all feel in our darkest places. I think that you do that so well. I think it's a, it's a courageous thing, obviously, but it's a great, great gift that you give to the, to the listeners to help them feel even through a book where you're not even physically present. It gives them that feeling that they're not alone. Your, your authenticity and the authenticity of your story is absolutely compelling. I think there's this terrible thing that diet culture has done Mm -hmm. to us. And it's, and I, I, you might disagree with this, but I think it's so different than substance use. It's maybe not different than depression or anxiety, but this idea of like, get over it. Right. You know, this idea of like, oh, just stop eating. Like I've had, you know, when I used to do adolescent work, I had parents say, you know, well, can't she just get on a treadmill and stop eating? And I'm like, well, if she could, she would, you know, it's right. a little bit more complicated than that. And I, I always, um, you know, I'm a big uh, spiritual gal and there's in one of my spiritual circles, they say, you know, if you can't remember your bottom, it's not your bottom. And so anytime that I'm writing about this kind of stuff, I, I always channel my bottom and I always channel that part of me that was just so angry and so hopeless and so convinced that nothing would work. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just write to her and I read to her and I see what she thinks, you know, and I have right. to soften or get more validating because, man, I mean, talk about a thief and a terrorist, like, you know, food and weight disorders are really those, they really steal and they hold us hostage. Now this this question probably is one that you you've you've received probably many times even before the book and and again when when looking at the cover it's it's one of those first questions that might come up for a lot of readers why sugar I mean most people many people that with weight issues or food issues can identify food consumption as a problem whether it be just eating too much or or binging 
um, lots of areas around food, but what stands out with sugar? What makes sugar your, your, your focus, the, the targeted enemy, if you will? Yeah, that's a good question. And also, by the way, like in even in typical, like what they today is typical food addiction treatment, of which you know, I'm not a big fan of. It's an incredibly rigid model. And so it's not actually something that I'm a proponent of. I actually believe in this very harm reduction food addiction model. You know, so they're like, no sugar, no flour, no salt, no this, no this. And I'm like, oh, wait, you know, I'm like, wow, that just makes me want to go and binge, right? right? But the thing about sugar is that it's, it really, for those of us who have the thing, right? For those of us who have the unhealthy relationship, I mean, first of all, why sugar? Number one, you know, it's my story, right? It's my story. And my story goes, I was doing low fat calorie counting. Um, I was running a clinic in, uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut with that model. My clients were not getting well. I mean, not in the way they were, they were, but it, it, the, those who were getting well were doing it with such a grip, you know, that it didn't seem healthy mm-hmm. and most weren't. And then, and then of course, um, the therapist, me is going home every single night and uh, binging her brains out on frozen yogurt and honey mustard pretzels and Snackwell's cookies. And I'm gaining weight hand over fist in this clinic, you know, and I get caught, you know, throwing up low-fat muffins at work. And I think to myself, you know, I don't know if I had this thought, but certainly like, well, I haven't solved the problem yet. Um, and it was just, I, it was just a mess. And so I thought, you know, back to the drawing board mm-hmm. and listen, in my industry, it's an interesting industry I'm in here in the eating disordered world. And even in the, in the behavioral world, because mm-hmm. They're very into intuitive eating. And so one of the people in, in my behavioral world said to me, well, what science do you have that supports sugar? Mm-hmm. And I just said, like, you know, what about like diabetes? <laughs> so there's this big medical and biological piece of this that th- when we're putting this kind of sugar into our bodies, like just from a straight endocrine perspective, it's compromising us. But also what this sugar is doing to our brains for those of us who are sensitive, right? It it takes this brain hostage and it doesn't allow for us to make decisions that are in our, the service of our highest and best self. So when I gave up sugar, it was like, I finally had, I don't like this word, but I can't think of a better one. I had the control that I'd always wished I had had. Mm. When I was doing everything else, it was just gripping, right? I was like, okay, when is this coming back? It was always like a hustle. It was a fight. I was always worried about like getting into the clothes or not getting the clothes or binging, like all of it, right? And when I gave up sugar, it all stopped. I mean, not to say that I, hadn't, I haven't emotionally eaten in 10 and a half years or haven't even overeaten in 10 and a half years, but the frequency is diminished and the peace, you know, and then when I threw it into my clinic, it was like everybody got well. <laughs> and right. so, and then the research supports it, right? So that's why. <laughs> Did you know, I mean, I'm curious about this because I think it's great that you have a lot of science in there. Um, but I think a lot of people benefit from that and need that. Yeah. Did you know about the science when you decided to break up with sugar or did that come afterwards? No, I, you know, it's such a funny these blind spots that we have, right? I mean, it, it, 
I was in a, I was in a spiritual fellowship at the time where like my best friend didn't eat sugar and flour. And I was just like, what a lunatic, hmm. you know, how, how do, what God, what kind of life is that? God, Amy, oof, you know, and Amy was like so happy and peaceful and finished her meal. And I'm like at dinner with Amy, like, could she get up from the table so I can have more of this bread, you know, like, so I knew it. I just sort of was like, oh, God, those low-carb lunatics past the frozen yogurt. Like I just, you know, I was like sugar was my solution. It wasn't my problem. And mm -hmm. I, I wasn't willing to look at it in any other way. And we protect our substance, you know? I remember one of, one of the first memories I had uh, of my relationship with you was we were at a dinner together. And I, I, there was something you were talking about, your relationship with food. And I asked about, I asked about it and you said, I'm addicted to everything. And you said it with a smile. <laughs> and I remember how liberating it was for me to hear that. It was scary for me to hear that because I knew it was true about me. <laughs> and at the same time, it was also liberating for me that I could say that to myself, that you could, you gave me in that moment, the courage, a deeper courage to be more honest with myself and about my vulnerabilities. So that's one of the many times you've impacted me mm. in, in ways, that, in moments that you probably don't even remember or recognize, but probably come so easily to you. It's that getting, it gives me the chills to say this, but it's like when I finally stepped into that truth and I under, because Brad, it's like, I could cry saying it like, you know, from the age of three to the age of 30, I suffered and I suffered and I suffered. And of course the detox was hard. And of course the first stuff is hard, like it is. But to know that that was the culprit and to actually have something that I could put my finger on and not do anymore was liberating in a way that I didn't know possible. I mean, I, I'm sort of on the outskirts of this eating disorder world where they're all saying, oh, healthy relationship with food. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. But now I have it. And mm -hmm. it's like, I can't believe it's possible. Still, 10 and a half years later. Right. You use the word relationship, which I love when, when talking about food. Um, I, for me and you, that might sound normal to talk about a relationship with something that's not necessarily a, a person. Um, but tell people where that might be a new idea. Yeah, but Brad, the truth is it wouldn't be healthy. But the truth is you could live a life without a relationship with another person. Of course, we don't agree with that. Of course, you don't right. agree with that. That's not healthy. But you could survive. You could never survive without a relationship with food. And you could never survive without a relationship with yourself. And those two are so intertwined. And diet culture has wrecked that for us because right. it has made us chronic cheaters. It has made it completely acceptable to wake up one day and leave your relationship to try something different. I mean, there is no longevity in the concepts of your relationship with food. And I mean, I got so much pushback from people who were looking to buy this book about the audacity of having a 66 day plan. Couldn't I make it less? You know? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm a scientist. Like, no, that's actually the first day I could find where your brain changes. And I'm right. not writing a book that is going to be another quick fix to let people down. Like, no. Yeah. I love it how they want you to write what sells instead of what, what's the <laughs> truth. I think Molly, that the, 
I've always been, I've always thought about those who are identify as alcoholics or drug addicts and, and comparing those to the people that, that identify as having disordered eating and, and how it's simpler for the addicts and the alcoholics because you can live a life without alcohol and drugs yeah. Yeah. Um, in your life. And you can't without food. And I've always thought, you talk about this in the book about it just, it seems unfair that, that many of for many of us, our addiction, our compulsion around food and our relationship with food is, is to something that we can't go without. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then I also just, because I also, I don't drink alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. and it was easier, honestly, I, I gave it up after sugar, but it was much easier. You know, it's like, it's, it's not a thing, but right. I think there is this really beautiful kind of more spiritual concept that I've been able to shift into, which is, it deepens my relationship with myself and and my something bigger than me. Having to mm. deal with this every day, the, you know, like any relationship, like it, relationships grow you and they shape you and they make you better if you do them well, right? Even in the challenges of them, you learn about yourself. And if you can shift that um, concept into your relationship with food, it's it's pretty remarkable if you think right. about it. Right. But people have been so disempowered by the diet industry that this doesn't even occur to them. And a woman said to me yesterday, you know, I just blew it. And I said, you can't talk like that anymore. You know, right. you, you can't because then you're never going to get it. And then they're going to win. And you're never going to get empowered. You got to step into your power here. Like get this, by the way. Side note, you know, who I learned this from is you, uh, you know, get curious. You know, I always say that to people now. It's like, get curious. Like you didn't mean to have the slip. Let's just figure it out so we can strengthen your relationship. And people are like, their heads are falling off. Like, oh my God, I don't have to live in this abusive relationship anymore. I can actually step into some truth and some power here. I, I really like in the book how you talk about our internal voice and you really become a, a kind of a warrior. You have a warrior's voice to defend a person against their own attacks on their self. I think that's a powerful and, and, and nurturing moment in, in what you've written. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's just the abuse, the external abuse and the internal abuse is, is just so, it's just so prevalent in this. And I think what's happened to, to many of us who have been in the diet, drama, and trauma. And I really use that term like authentically as a therapist, lowercase mm-hmm. t, but nevertheless, it's like, God, there are so many things that are acceptable that we, in the ways that we treat ourselves with food and with internal languaging that is like, okay. And it's a, it's a big rehabbing that needs to happen in this breaking up of sugar and, and divorcing dieting. They can't happen without each other. Just breaking up a sugar is not going to be sufficient to get you freedom. And just divorcing dieting is not sufficient to get you freedom, but both of them together really is going to make a huge difference in people's lives. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are parents of children that are struggling, not all of them, of course. So I want to take a moment and just ask you, um, growing up with with the issues that you share in the book around food, your relationship with food and the, yeah. the difficulty there. Yeah. And I know you work with families also. What are What are your... What's your advice? What do you what do you say to, to the parents of children that are struggling with disordered eating and, and relationship struggles with, with food? What kind of advice do you have for them? It's such a great question because it's um it's such a 
an individualized question. But um, you know, the the first thing I think age of your child has so much to do with it. And so, you know, when we're under 12, it's really a parental issue. Um, I always, the two questions I always ask parents, right? Is it, um, do they think it's a problem? And does the pediatrician think it's a problem? And, you know, more often than not, both of those answers are no, in which case it's not a problem. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the second thing, you know, which I think parents really don't like is, the first thing we have to do is look at the parent's relationship with food, you know, and mm -hmm. so often, and you know, the inheritance rate of an eating disorder is up in 10%. And so I, I believe it's such a systemic thing in family systems. And so to start with the parents getting a healthier relationship with food, integrating that into the home, having pretty equal um, rules for everybody in the home, you know, and really, trying some very basic pieces in, in a, in, in a not-emergency way, I think it'd be very effective. I mean, the, the only beauty that a food problem has in the overeating piece of it is that it's not lethal, right? It's, it's an installment plan problem. And in that way, you know, it's the, it's the only positive it has with kids is that it's not going to, it's not like drugs in that way. Like we, we have a little bit of time and we can make small incremental changes within the family system that can be really, really effective. And and taking a lot of the judgment out of it and a lot of the fear out of it is going to be so helpful to parents. But really taking a, a, a brave and wholehearted look at your relationship with food. Like, are you sitting down at the dinner table? Are you throwing food into your mouth? Are you saying, oh, I'm being bad today in front of your children? Like, every single piece of that counts right because of the messaging they're getting outside too right they're they're in diet culture sometimes i think you know i think we're becoming more and more sensitive as a culture to shaming groups of people yeah i hope and and sometimes i think people with weight issues are are kind of the the last uh, that, that we're still that, that our culture still it, we're not sensitive to the the shaming that goes on around body size and, and, and body shape. And I, I don't know if that's my imagination because of my own challenges in this area, or if that's something that you see in the treatment field. It's pretty polarized, I think. There is a huge movement, health at any size movement. There is a huge movement towards body acceptance right now. Lizzo, you know, it's a huge movement towards it. And then there's a huge backlash against it. There is, hmm. so there's a huge movement, health at any size, but health at any size is not, is not does not accept uh, weight release as a thing. They're they're very against weight release. They think exactly as you are is exactly as you should be. I think. And by the way, I think people are lovable at any size. I'm not sure we're healthy, and I'm not sure we want to be in the relationship with food that we're in. But it's very rigid over there, and then it's very rigid on the other side of it, which is you know you're fat and you're disgusting and you're worthless and all of these things that you know we know about. One of the only discrimination forms that's like mildly acceptable these days is really that. But there's a big movement. It's just, it's so polarized that it doesn't leave space for us to heal if we want to, the health at any size movement. So is the answer like the middle way again? Is it just like it's it's neither? It's something else? Brad, is that isn't the that always the answer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it usually is. It's always the. It's so annoying, but it's so. I know. It's always the middle way. It's just yeah. bless that Buddha, you know. Right. Right. Um. So, you've you've answered this again. I'm I'm I'm. I can identify with the hopelessness of of diets and failed diets over and over again. Um, and, and you've, you've, you, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, but I want, I want to ask the question again for the listener, how is this going to be different? Fundamentally, how is this going to be different from everything else that I've tried? I, I hear that. I mean, and it's kind of like the only thing that matters to me is that this is different for people. Mm. And so actually when I wrote the book, um, when I wrote the book, I actually, the third part of the book, which has to do with reducing harm and has to do with skills and has to do with cravings and has to do with finding your own way. I put that in the second part. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I had so many people who were in the beginning of their process of breaking up a sugar read it. And they got so angry at me. They were like, I need to know about the food. I need to know about it right now, you know? And so I moved the food chapter to the second part, but I didn't want to. So what I have to say is it's all about the food and it's not about the food. There's a chapter in the book that, that says that, but you have to surrender to the idea that this has more to do with than just food. Right. And so- I say in this book, literally, if you stop here, after you read the food plan, if you stop here, this is another diet. Breaking up with sugar Mm -hmm. is another diet. But going into the second half of that book, which has to do with restructuring your thinking and grieving and picking up skills that are not food, you know, and getting connected and learning what to do to reduce harm, because you, you know how we behave around food, Brad, right? We make like one decision and it's like, and I, you know, we make one mistake. We have a, a cookie and it's like, game's on, right. right? May as well have fettuccine Alfredo for lunch. Gonna go get frozen right. yogurt and then you're off to the races. And it's like if you got a flat tire on your car, getting out of the car and slashing all four tires and leaving the car in the middle of the road and, right. and torching it. And if we behaved in any other relationship like that, we would have no relationships, you know? If I had a bad day at work and I shut down the clinic, that never happens. And so it's really after you give up, after you break up with the sugar, you got to learn how to live without it. And you have to learn how to thrive without it. And that's the second half of the book. And so in making the, and that's why, by the way, the second chapter of that book has nothing to do with sugar. The second chapter of the book is a sacred vow. And it says, please do not cut and run from this thing the way that you've done so many other times. Just stay the course here. Learn how to be in a relationship. Please, 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 I beg you. Because that's what's going to be different is if you decide this is a relationship that you're not leaving, that you're willing to stay the course, then you will find success. Period. Right. I, I think one of the things that I got out of it was a very clear and distinct idea about the addictive thinking. I think so many people who don't weren't addicted to drugs or alcohol, can't relate to the all or nothing thinking. Right. But when you talk about eating a cookie and then ended up just wanting to torture yourself with a complete and, and destructive relapse, I think a lot of people can relate to that that don't have substance abuse issues. And I think that's a powerful way to connect them 
to, to especially in my work with with their children who are struggling with something that seems so irrational to them. Yeah, totally. I think that the black and white thinking, the light, the light switch thinking is pervasive. I mean, for, for all of us, it's like, I'm good. I'm bad. Like parenting, right? I'm a good parent. I'm a bad parent. Right. You know, they're a good kid. They're a bad kid. They're on there. I mean, and it, again, like it is so never that, right? It's always middle path. It's always, it depends. And of all the things that it has to be that way with, it's food is just, you have to be negotiating it so so often. So it has to be a lighter grip we're holding. Let me ask a question in a way from the other side of the continuum. Um, the, the question that came to mind as I was thinking about possible questions to ask you is, um, are you just treating the symptom here? If, if eating and weight is the symptom um, are you just treating the sy- symptom? What about the underlying issues, yeah. causes, things like childhood trauma and childhood yeah. attachment? Yeah, I know. I'm so glad you asked me that question. So for those of you listening, you know, Brad Reedy was my supervisor. In therapy, we have supervisors. It's like he was my therapy therapist for like two years, best years of my life. I learned so much. And so there's only so much we can do in a book right? Like, that's what I learned writing a book that someone's going to read. So I, I had huge childhood trauma, right? I mean, attachment wounds, the whole, the whole nine. And certainly my life has not been like, oh, I just broke up with sugar and created a new relationship. And there it is. Like I was in therapy and I've been in trauma therapy and all of those things. And so the best I could do in that book was say in each one of those chapters, hey, uh, you may break up with sugar and all of these feelings may come up. And it actually may be more than you can handle, (laughs) which it was for me. Mm -hmm. And you may want to go try therapy or try a support group. And then when I'm talking about the skills, because this is actually something I wholeheartedly believe. And I say this thing like, and I call it putting my therapist hat on, you know, because I'm writing this book like as your bestie and your coach, but I'm a therapist in my soul. And I believe exactly right. what you're saying. And I say this thing like, hey, you know, you might be trying these skills and you might think, oh my God, these things are not working. I don't know what to do. I'm trying so hard. And that may be trauma. And if that's the case, here are some ideas of how to, of how to help that. Because I think that that's very true. And I think that that is something that is not talked about in these kind of diet books, which I don't like to think of my book as a diet book. I think of it as a relationship book, but most of America thinks of it as a diet book. And there's such, you know, individuality in all of this and everybody is so different. And and of course I believe like, you know, the minute that our, whoever gave us a milk, when we started crying, like this thing got complicated, right? (laughs) Like just as a therapist. And so I think you can get a long way with the book, but it's not to say that there isn't more work to do. And I think it also depends on like how healthy you want this new relationship to be. Like I, I love outside help and I love acupuncture and all these things. And in, in my own process of, you know, listen, I weighed 325 pounds, right? And I've been through, I mean, I've put my body through more than I could even explain and probably will write a second book about. And so this reclaiming of my body has been its own chapter. It's just, there's so much... But the truth is, I don't think it's, it is treating a symptom, but in order to get to the underlying issues, you have to break up a sugar. 
it's hard to do therapy with a drunk and it's hard to do yeah you get to the work with somebody when they're actively in their addiction and their brain altering behavior yourself a chance to get to those issues you know I, i think that's that's the beautiful part of it i think for some of us we can read a book and get well and for some of us we can read a book and see that we need to get extra help like that would be me. <laughs> well, I want to I want to return the favor a little bit, Molly, because I, I want to share with folks that I reached out to you. I think it's been about a year and a half now when I when I was struggling with uh, one of my children and their relationship with food um, and and the health concerns that were coming up for them. And I rem- I, rem- I was sitting in this exact same chair that I'm sitting in now, and I and I called you. And, and first of all, I mean, I could cry when I say this, but you just listened a lot. Um, and, and I don't know if you said it or if it was just a question, but afterwards I was very aware of the impact of my relationship with food and it's, you know, it's, it's hereditary impact and environmental impact on my children. That's the second thing. But third, it was the thing that you said to me toward the end of our phone call, which is, you know, you need to do something. You already know the answer and I can hear it in you. And Again, it was it was different than the advice that I had from some of the therapists that I've worked with here locally, where they were telling me what to do and kind of hijacking mm. um, the, the session and just taking over. I, I want to express at this moment, I don't know if I've ever said this to you, my gratitude for you seeing me that day as a father who was struggling and as a father who was questioning and, and, and not finding his his truest, biggest self. So thank you for that. Yeah. What you did for me. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's a beautiful, it's such beautiful work we get to do. And I, I accept, I accept your gratitude, but I think I also want to share, um, you know, I was writing. So I, I, I knew I wanted to write this book for a decade. Right. Cause when I first gave up mm-hmm. sugar, I was like, this is the thing I need to write a book about it. Right. And then the universe had other right. plans. And, and one of the things that, so I wrote, I wrote my story. I wrote my story mm-hmm. oh, five years ago. I wrote my story. And a friend's, uh, a friend's father beta tested it. He read it. And he wrote in the side, something is missing in the story. And what was missing in that story was my bariatric surgery. I was so ashamed of getting bariatric surgery. And, um, and I was like going to die with that secret. And so anybody who hadn't known me before the age of 24 didn't know, including the people who worked for me, including my best friends, Passy. I mean, it was just this whole big t- secret. And, you know, I had this real coming to where I, where I recognized that I had to uh, share. If I wasn't going to share this, I wasn't going to be able to write this book. It was like going to be the price of entry for me. It was going to be my break open. And I was, I was being supervised by you at the time. And I remember, because I remember where I was sitting when I said, Brad, I have to go and tell this secret to everybody. People who I had to, I was having a staff meeting and I I said, I have to go tell everybody, (laughs) you know? And um, it's just, you know, we are, everything we do with other people, we never know the impact we make, right? And and you just talked me through it and you just said this thing, (laughs) you know, and I'm such a neurotic New Yorker, you know? And you said, Molly, you know, you're wonderful. And I said, yeah, what else? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. he said, no, that's the whole sentence, Molly. 
That's the whole sentence. You're wonderful. That's all you need to know. And again, there was just something, it changed me as a person and it changed me as a clinician and coming out with that truth to my team and to everybody, my mentors, I mean, I had to go, you know, inform the masses and mm-hmm. kind of just knowing my own fallibility and, and the most fascinating piece of all of it, by the way, just the, just sort of just to remind people that like, we just never really know the story. Like we never really know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Number one, people are fascinated by this people. And so many people have my story. People are writing to me like, oh my God, I've gained a hundred pounds from my bariatric surgery. Like, thank you. Like, thank you. And like, and like, I was really going to die with the secret. I was very devoted to it. And it's like, and then I just did the things that we know to do, right? I connected with it. I told my truth. I had support. And like, I can't tell you how freeing it was. And then I was really, when you're talking about what's touching you about this book, the first round of that, of my story was not that because then I sat down and every single time I wrote this book and I was stuck, this is what I would say to myself. What is my truth? What is my truth? What is my truth? And I would just write that, you know, it didn't matter. I wasn't going to write about my dad. I thought that was too much for people. I mean, that's my trauma, right? My my mother, too much or too much. And then I was like, but that's my truth. I wasn't going to write about that, but that's my truth. And I just, throughout everything I do now, I just think, what is the real truth? And I just kind of bravely say that to the best of my ability. And that's, that's a function of, of, you know, some of my time with you and just sort of learning how to love myself. And by the way, I could never do that without breaking up a sugar. It's just the process is more profound than all of that. I think if you let it be right. Yeah, well, it comes through. Your 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 truth comes through. It's funny when I read the book. I don't know if you ever have this experience, um, but it, I read it in your voice. <laughs> I try really hard to make it sound like me. <laughs> it's so your voice. I love it. Um, I have a bit of a fun question to ask. And while everybody listening might not write a book, um, I, I want to ask you a fun question about what it feels like to write a book and giving birth to this. And now the interviews and, 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 and what it's like for you, what are the lessons, the takeaways, the, the, the joys, the feelings that come as you've accomplished something wonderful like this? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the most, you know, I, in my, I believe so, I'm so glad that I didn't publish this book 10 years ago because I don't think I understood what it was to be, of service. I, I didn't think, you know, and, and I, and I think the idea that like every day two or three people kind of reach out to me and say, Hey, this is like really changing my life. And just to have been in such a hopeless place and, um, be able to just like get to see that is pretty incredible. But I wrote this, I, um, I wrote this book in 90 days because I wanted to get it out quickly and I didn't want to wait till January, 2021. And so it was such a beautiful, um, I don't know if it was beautiful. I mean, it was messy and hard and I mean, birthing a book about your story and about something that really matters to you, right? It's just uh, complicated, right? But I think like every other challenge in my life, it's like, really solidified my relationship with myself and relationship with, you know, my spiritual relationship. Like, and also I'm not so good at asking for help. 
And it's, it's a real limitation, right? I mean, it's a real limitation of mine. It's like, you know, I fall into the I got it and it's no big deal. And it's, it really, it's, it starts my cycle of isolation and that really brings me into more negative space. And I almost like, I didn't have an opportunity to do that when I, since I wrote the book so quickly and I had to, you know, I was like crying in front of my staff, you know, in, in an appropriate, just, and, and, and they would say, is there anything we can do to help? And I would say, yes. Can you do yeah. this for me? And this is like a new Molly, right? Like new Molly who dis, you know? Yes. And like one of my clinicians was, I was like, can you take over admissions? Like I can't do all of this. And this is like, and by the way, the other thing I had to do while I was writing this book was like not eat sugar and not binge. And like, that's no easy feat when you're that stressed, right? And so mm-hmm. I always feel like in that way, having a food and weight disorder, it's such an indicator right? Like if I'm really, really starving and it's not time to eat, like that's not a food problem. That's an emotional right. problem. And right. so, you know, I just had to, I, it really, it grew me and it's grown me in such an incredible way. Um, as, as has this exposure about my story, like the New York Post is like asking how much I weigh. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I going to do? What was that like when they asked? Because that's, Seems so inappropriate and ridiculous. What? Right? What, what are those? I agree, what Brad. <laughs> What's that? I agree, but yeah. you know, we don't let perfection be the enemy of the good, right? But it was like, and then it was so right. It's such a good question. I don't even weigh people at my clinic. I mean, I write so much about weighing yourself in the book and doing it in a healthy, loving way. And effectively, it was like, hey, like this is something we're publishing. I mean, it. it they did not say this to me, but it was like, I think either I'm gonna do it their way or it's not going to get published. And, you know, I guess I always ask this question when I do anything, it's like, will this, if they publish the story, does it have the possibility to help one person? And I don't, you know, in this town, New York city, New York post is, you know, it's King. And it's like, and so I, I went, I had to stretch my zone of comfort a lot of places and it's been terrible and amazing just as it is in that warrior journey right this is like every Uh, single thing you write about this has been my heroic journey this whole like coming out with every single part of this has been my hero's journey and i thought i'd already had my hero's journey you know i'm like oh god this again you know that's the way life goes absolutely well, Molly, tell people a little bit about where they can find you. Both your, I want, I want you to tell a little bit about your clinic. Tell us about your website. Tell us about where they can reach you on social media. Because I know you're doing a lot more right now with like your Sunday evening. Yeah. Well, you know, here's why. Like finding real community around food and weight issues that isn't like diet focused and isn't, it's just it's hard to find your exact people. Now, not impossible, even if you don't ever want to talk to me again. Nothing is impossible. You'll always find your people. But if you want to really find your people, I'm obsessed with this. I'm obsessed with creating community, you know, kind of of my own free of free of serve, free of charge because it matters to me so much. So one of the most important parts of creating a healthy relationship with food is learning how to not cut and run and is really learning how to be imperfect. And so mollycarmel.com is my website and on it you can find what I call the anti-perfection plan and just this little giveaway on the website to start to create a new relation with perfectionism because if you 
are in a really, I mean, as you and I both know, the only way to live a very miserable life is to be a perfectionist, but it's nearly impossible to be in a healthy relationship with food and be a perfectionist. It just, it just can't happen. And you got to learn how to do that. So that's on mollycarmel.com. And then, um, and then my social media handles, you know, Molly Carmel on Instagram and um, mollycarmel.buws on Facebook. You know, I'm very committed every Sunday night at nine o'clock at night, I get on these lives and just talk about, you know, about an email that I've written that Sunday. I write an email every single Sunday to people. And here's why though, because for me and my in my journey, Sundays are like the worst, right? Because usually you have like a bit of a bender of a weekend. And so at three o'clock on Sunday, I send an email out to my people. And then it's like, and then if you can get to nine o'clock Sunday night, we can connect, you know, Monday's looking pretty hopeful. So I've done it really intentionally that way. Um, so, you know, and so, and then if you're in New York City or the surrounding area, we got this wonderful, uh, wonderful clinic where you can get some extra help. Um with your food and weight and other issues, the beacon and that's beaconprogram.com. So there's lots of different ways to, um, to get help and support from me, most of it being free of charge. And, and I can't tell you, like, I'm so moved by all of this. Truly. I'm just so moved by, um, by how people are taking this because it's really been, been just like, it's sort of the culmination of when I was 13 years old and thought, you know, maybe I'll, make a difference in this world. And I know I have in small ways, um, but having this book come out has been a, a, a rather large way. And it's just, just not lost on me. Like this 325 pound suicidal fat girl who just thought there was no hope is just like really, you know, <laughs> really surprised by all of this. So you're kind of special. And that's, I believe that's an objective truth. I don't think that's just my subjective truth. <laughs> I think although, you're kind of special too, though, for real. But I hear what you're saying. My special tea. I'm special and I have a special tea. <laughs> Both. Um, people might be looking for a therapist or a support group in their area. They don't, they can, they can go to your website. They can read your book. They can tune in on, on, on Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Um, what's your counsel advice for them in finding a therapist? What are kind of the markers for you in finding a therapist or support group that work for them? Yeah. Well, the thing is, what people may not know is that, you know, food addiction is a, is a unpopular um, I, idea in the eating disorder world. And because they really believe in moderation and intuitive eating. And I believe if somebody tells you one way, run away. Right. And I, I believe that there is a way to find intuition with your relationship with food, but it requires getting this biochemical issue off of your plate, so to speak. So I think if you're looking for some extra help and you're looking for support with a therapist, I would steer away from people who are going to be telling you that you should be able to moderate. If you're identifying with what I'm saying, intuitive eating is probably not for you and moderation is probably not for you. And so you actually can find that in a good addictions therapist, right? You can find that in a good behaviorist. And I think if you can take some of the principles in the book and then bring your outside issues to your therapist, that's going to be great. The other thing is there are some 12-step groups that are very accepting of this model and other models that you can find support, uh, support with also. So I think Certainly, of course, like this is an evolving model. And I think probably as time goes on, I'll be able to train people and help people, you know, help others. But for now, I, I, 
I believe you can find help, I would just try to steer away from some of the ideas that may take you off of the path. Right. Not that those don't work for people, but they usually don't work for people who have problems with sugar. That makes sense. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks for offering this this to our to our listeners. And thank you for the gift of your book and your story. And and like I said, it is um it's moving, it's powerful, it, it feels spiritual and it comes to the heart and it connected to my heart. And and it's just to me, it's just a, a, a signal of how you show up in the world. And um Thank you for how you show up in the world. Thank you, Brad. You're such a gift to all of us. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your friendship. I am. And thank you for joining us, listeners. And thank you for, for subscribing to the podcast and sharing. And I hope this I hope this is a helpful idea for you, even if it's not right up your alley. And for those of you that are concerned about your children or other loved ones, thank you for and on behalf of them for your willingness to do your own work. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.